Well, good morning, Christ Church. I am excited. I have the privilege to introduce our guest speaker for this morning. <laughs> no, we are excited. Uh, as you know, we're walking through the, the book of First Timothy, and we've come to the section that we're going to discuss today, which is on eldership. Um, and we thought it would be uh, the perfect opportunity to bring someone other than an elder up here uh, to discuss it. And so I want to just say uh, welcome and have you guys be praying for uh, Matt Labasso as he preaches this morning. So thanks again, Matt, for being voluntold and uh, <laughs> your graciousness this morning. So thank you. All right. How's that sound? All right. Good morning, Christ Church. Um, thank you. As uh, John Mark said, I'm going to be preaching the sermon on eldership today, and I am not an elder, so there's that. Um, this is actually the first time I've ever preached a sermon at all, so you all are witnessing history in the making right here. <laughs> Um, so for anybody here who doesn't know, and just for the sake of the topic of eldership, I will point out that we have four um, men operating as elders at Christ Church, uh, Carrie, Daniel, John Mark, and Patrick. Um, so if you haven't had the pleasure of talking with these guys um, or getting to know them, I would uh, encourage you to reach out. So with that being said, uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Um, I'll follow up with a quick prayer, and then we will we'll get into it. All right. The saying is trustworthy. Uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Um, pray this morning that your word would go forth in power, um, that we who hear it would be sanctified by it, uh, because it is truth. We thank you that we have your truth. Um, we just pray that you be glorified in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, funny story, shortly after I was approached by Patrick to ask if I'd be interested in preaching, um, as John said, maybe voluntold, right? It's a little hazy there. Um, I, had a, uh, <laughs> I had a little bit of a tiff with my wife, Allison. Um, and if anybody knows Allie, tiff is 100% her word. So I just want to set the record straight there. I don't use that word at all. Um, that's hers. So <laughs> we're driving back from Galveston. had a little bit of tension in the car over a broken fishing rod. Um, it was broken during packing. Um, and I think I said something like, so pretty crazy that I might be preaching a sermon on uh, 
elders, right? And she lovingly replied, yep. It's great. You get to preach on something you're not. <laughs> so I started laughing. She started laughing. And it was just a good way to kind of end the tension. We ended up having a great drive home after that. So that was good. Um, but the good thing about the statement is that it's true. Like, yeah, I am not an elder. So um, my perspective on the text is coming from that of, you know, a member of the body who doesn't hold any role or office, which I think is very distinct and specific, and it's going to lend itself to just my view and the angle that I'm viewing this from. So let's jump in here. What is an elder? I'm going to get some water, actually. So going back to the text, um, you might notice in the ESV that word we're discussing, it's actually translated as overseer. Um, the Greek here is episkopos, and the word is somewhat interchangeable between overseer, elder, um, even bishop in English. Uh, it's essentially, it designates a leader in a given church that cares for the local body by means of oversight. Now, like John Mark said last week, um, I too am not a Greek scholar. Um, and I'm definitely not wanting to stumble through a language class here, but the method of care is important because, uh, like a lot of things that get translated from Greek to English, uh, it's easy to settle on a presumed definition and not see the larger scope of what these words are relaying contextually. Um, so episkopos can literally translate to a superintendent. Um, and I'm sure most of you hearing that have thoughts of roles you've seen or heard in different industries, right? School superintendents, building superintendents, so on, but the contextual reference for our reading today is the word episcopeo, which can be understood to mean to oversee, by implication, to beware, look diligently, take the oversight. So this role, is the superintendent is tasked with inspecting, looking after, caring for, standing in readiness, um, and awareness for the body of believers among them. So for the scholarly folks in the room, um, there are some striking parallels between the verses we just read in 1 Timothy and uh, Titus 1, where Paul essentially outlines the same details of qualifications with the intention of laying a framework for the office of elder. Likewise, we see the use of the Greek word presbyteros in Titus 1.5, used in the same context with episkopos in 1.7, referencing the roles of elder and overseer and with the ESV translation, that distinction is made clear by translating 1.5 as elder and 1.7 as overseer. So you get a sense that the difference in usage is likely the difference between an office and title and the function of that office. An elder will oversee, so an overseer is an elder, and an elder an overseer. So that's a little bit of a background for the role, um, just so we're all on the same page. So let's take a look at how he starts off the chapter. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A noble task. So aspiring to the office of overseer is desiring something noble. Why is that? Because it's a desire to care for the people of God. It's a desire to stand aware on behalf of the body of Christ. It's not a desire to rule or lord or dominate but rather to follow in the footsteps of Christ by leading in a sacrificial and servant-like manner. And that's what our elders aspire to, and I believe it's something they do well in how they love and care for and serve this community. Um, the important thing to remember here is that this is what we should expect. 
serving leaders that desire the noble task of overseeing all of us, caring for our spiritual health, discipling and teaching and even protecting us from error, keeping our eyes fixed on the simplicity of the gospel, being beacons of reminder to draw our focus and attentions back to Christ. Like Peter stated in 2 Peter, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, and I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. So going back to the parallel verses in Titus, Paul throws in a very slight but I think incredibly important phrase in 1.7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. As God's steward, you see the defining characteristic of the office of elders, the reality that they're acting as a steward for the Lord. They're representing him, standing on behalf of him for the people, like shepherds, like caretakers. This isn't for self-promotion or harvesting clout or gaining acolytes coming in the name of elder so-and-so. This is about the Lord caring for his church through the faithfulness of men called to stand watch as shepherds of the flock. This is why later in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul states, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, because it's not a light thing to stand as a caretaker for the church. There's a weight there. It's important. And along with being considered worthy of double honor for leading well, there is also the inverse implication that elders will hold account for those in their care. There's an anticipation of judgment for the way an elder leads and teaches and cares for God's church, and thus the author of Hebrews states, in 1317, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Our elders will be held accountable for us to some degree. I don't know what full weight and implication there is in that, but it's a sobering thought. So with that being said, um, starting in verse 2, let's take a look at the qualifications. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What stands out here to anybody? No. <laughs> I mean, for me, I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking this is kind of exactly what I should be aspiring to as a believer, right? Um, this isn't a, 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 like a doctoral list of qualifications outlining vast experiences, decades of study on nuanced topics of theology. It's a good moral standard for every single member of the body of Christ. Let's be above reproach. If you're married, be faithful to your spouse. Be clear-minded and sober. Have self-control. Be respectable. Be hospitable. Have the ability to teach, perhaps not to the extent that a functioning elder would teach, but in a more general sense, to understand the gospel, be able to convey it in however few or many words are required. Again, don't be a drunkard. Don't be violent or given to fits of rage. Be gentle and kind, remembering the measure of grace you've been given and giving the same measure to others. Don't be contentious and quarrelsome. Don't be a lover of money. Don't be driven by greed. Be generous with what you have. These are not unreasonable asks for anyone professing justification and salvation through Jesus Christ. And by God's grace and the work of, work of sanctification in our lives, these are all things we should aspire to grow in. 
water break. Oh, that was loud. Um, then Paul gets a little more specific. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. You hear that, kids? <clears throat> for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Manage your household well. Why? And he answers it in the same breath, right? If you can't manage your own household, how can you care for God's church? It seems like an obvious statement, but I think there's important subtext here. If a brother can't maintain a dignified home, then he shouldn't be in a position to look after God's church as a leader, not as a disqualifying punishment, right? But because his home needs the focus first. So it stands to reason that a household in disarray would produce an unhealthy leader. I mean, you could have all the gifting and preaching and teaching and be able to elocute the gospel like a champ, but if your household is in complete disorder, your marriage in shambles, your children walking in blatant rebellion, you have all of those pressing things to get in order first. It's like, hey, clean this up and then we'll talk, you know? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is super practical, right? I mean, pride is destructive. It consumes if given room. So a recent convert, that covers the gamut of all ages. You have young recent converts, older recent converts. Age here isn't the focus, um, but it speaks the amount of time a person has walked in Christ. And if you've ever met a fresh believer full of zeal for the Lord, it's not hard to imagine how quickly that zeal could be turned to pride if they're thrust into a position of oversight too quickly. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Again, this is really practical stuff here. Let's not take a guy whose reputation in the community is completely negative for whatever reason and say, hey, this is an elder looking after the flock. I mean, in one sense, it could speak to a previously hidden character flaw where a man lives duplicitously, uh, where his role as a brother in the church and his role as a member of the broader community are not aligning. I mean, it stands with the earlier qualification of being above reproach. And a little word study later for you guys. I didn't really have time to put this down, but I was reading this morning and found an interesting connection here. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, write that down. <laughs> In reference to 1 Timothy 2, 2 and the verse we just read, all kind of paint this really cool picture of the idea of living um, at peace with all people and how we're thought of by outsiders. It's a good connection there, so check that out. So these qualities and qualifications, they give us a practical baseline that we should expect from our elders. And does it mean that every single aspect listed will be 100% nailed at all times? No, of course not. Um, there's a measure of grace here that gives room for growth, especially inside of leadership. So the encouragement here is that it's less about ticking off a checklist and it's more about the trajectory of an individual's walk. Um, it's like Peter said in 2 Peter 1.8, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So going back to the specifics and the qualifications, a good question to ask here is why? Why all the specific call-outs? Why the standards of conduct? Well, because we have a loving Father that cares for his church. At first glance, I admittedly processed these verses as rules or standards and thought these are just things that need to be observed, and I walked away with, all right, now I know what qualifies an elder. Like, next, what's, what's, what's next, right? 
Um, but the more time I spent with these verses, the more the underlying narrative of God's love for his people started to shine through, the more I could see that his care for his church is being entrusted to believers worthy of the call. And that's a direct reflection of his love for us, right? That we wouldn't be misled, that we wouldn't be led astray, but that we would have overseers that look out for our well-being, stand aware on our behalf, and demonstrate servant leadership as ambassadors of God's kingdom here on earth. Now, I want to pivot a bit here, and I want to talk about how this impacts us as the body. And to do that, I'm going to take a little trip to the past, and we're going to venture into the book of Exodus. So you turn to Exodus uh, 19, verses 5 through 7. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations, for the whole earth is mine. And unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. So, as you may know, um, in the Old Covenant presented in Exodus, this initial claim to the entire nation of Israel is that they would serve as a nation of priests. But it didn't exactly pan out that way. Um, in waiting for Moses to return from speaking with God, the people demanded Aaron make them an idol to worship. So he took their gold, and as Aaron puts it, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> so <laughs> when Moses returned and heard Aaron's account, he stood at the gate of the camp and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And it was the sons of Levi who heeded the call. Things got a little violent after that. Um, if you're interested in reading that portion of the story, it's detailed in Exodus 32, verses 25 through 29. We're not going to cover that here. It's a little, little gruesome. Um, but as a result of this, Moses essentially ordains the Levites as being conscripted for service to the Lord. And from that point onward, a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi according to the Old Covenant. And this was their function, uh, men that would come to God in the tabernacle, prepare offerings, become the arbiters of God's word, and ministers of reconciliation and atonement to the entire nation. So we see this perpetuate in Israel's history and the divide between the priesthood and just the people, it grew more and more to the point where it kind of became a social construct um, and kind of a caste system in a way, right? And within that divide, the expectations of this priestly order, they grew further and further apart from the expectations of just the common Israelite. So you have this massive divide of the priestly order and everybody else, right? So the priests, or the Levites, they were the rulers, religious rulers, close to God, possessors of the word, and anyone who wasn't a Levite had to go to them to get to God. And whether that was for atonement for sin or just religious understanding, they were the gatekeepers, right? So you might be thinking, right, like what does this have to do with elders in the church and me? Uh, <laughs> I think a lot. Our call as the body of Christ has once again picked up the mantle laid out in Exodus 19. And we, as the church, have been called to be a priestly people. That means that although there are offices within the church that serve specific functions and purposes, like the role of elder, 
The holistic view is that we all stand capable of being priests unto God. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And when we talk about the elders and the qualifications of elders, I mean, don't look at it as some external metric for these few guys in our community to possess. Look at it as something you'd set as a goal for yourself. Because that's the call for all of us to grow in holiness, to grow as a people for God's own possession, to stand ready, aware, and watchful for the people of God. And the men in our community have been called as elders. They give us a really good model of what that looks like because they lead by example. In fact, on a more personal note, uh, the example of the men in this community, and particularly the elders, has been instrumental in the growth of my family. The nonverbal instruction, nonverbal, got to qualify it, right? An exhortation of a demonstrated obedience to God's word has been one of the main facets the Lord has used to bring order and vision to my home. I'm encouraged to lead well because of the example I can clearly see. And by God's grace, we all have the means to get there. This qualification list is not met by sheer force of will. We're only the most determined make it to the final stages of Christian elite status. It's met by yielding to Christ, by laying down our lives, setting aside our own will, and taking on Christ. It's through the transformative reality of the gospel in our lives that we're conformed to the image of Jesus. And thus the gospel is the power to live as a holy priestly people before our holy God. And there's a convicting reality that none of us stand deserving of the grace we've been extended to know Jesus, that we are a people with common need. And we proclaim that need not with shame, but confidently, knowing that in our weakness, which I would almost qualify as our need of him, his strength is made manifest. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And later on in the, in the book, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So going back to the sermon text, we have a good outline we can use to qualify our leaders. And as I said, it's an outline we should all be aspiring towards in some manner. And that's not to say everyone needs to be an elder, right? But should the need arise, it would be great for this community to be spoiled with choice, right? Can you imagine a bunch of elders in waiting, <laughs> ready to heed the call, should the Lord require it? And it's a distinct call because it's more than just being qualified, it's about the work put into the local body. The work of equipping us, the church, for ministry. The work of preparation and intercession and shepherding. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And it's a work that cannot be fulfilled without the Lord's provision, without his spirit, and without his leading. So thank God for his provision in establishing faithful men in service to our community 
who lead by example, who stir us up to love and good works, is not just about elders or position, but God is for all people. That all would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said in chapter 1 to set the tone for this book, the aim of our charge is love. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision. Pray, Lord, that these words would just penetrate our hearts, that we would be stirred to movement, that we would choose to make much of you, Lord, that we would take the call um, as a priestly nation and own that and walk in that. We thank you, Lord, for your provision. We thank you for your spirit. We just pray you be glorified. In Jesus' name.